I realize it can be an interesting debate in regards to the most important person in regards to health and well-being who's ever lived, and I'm not going to say my opinion is definitive in this, but I thought I would share who I think is the most important person, both to human and animal lives. And perhaps what is surprising is that the human who prevented the most suffering physically and psychologically, and I'm talking both in terms of morbidity and mortality, this person had no major medical training. And unlike some people who have done amazing things whose lasting influence is not felt locally in every hometown, I assure you this person very much influenced your existence. He influenced the health of your children and of your great-great-grandchildren that have not even been born yet. What's most remarkable is that most of you won't recognize his name. Not only should there have been major international awards given, but with major respect to some of the greatest human beings that ever lived, we're talking about Einstein, Da Vinci, Lincoln, Mother Teresa, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, whoever, and others that rightfully owned their props, it is one of the great shames of academia and governments that not every high school student, let alone college students and professors, don't know this person's name. And I don't think I'm utilizing hyperbole here. I've never seen a high school or college named after this person who died in 2017. Yet, he helped kids be the number one thing they all want to be when they grow up, which is alive. And he invented nothing in the medical field, not a vaccine or a medication or a procedure. The fact that nearly all have built circuits of neurons to make memories that can easily visualize in our heads people like Kim Kardashian, Tom Brady, and others, yet barely anybody can picture the guy I'm talking about in their head shows how little most are paying attention to the most important things. So how important is this topic that I want to cover today? Well, it's a topic much more dangerous than responding to a Nigerian email. Ironically, nobody would know the names of Tom Brady or Kim Kardashian if the person I am soon to mention had not done what he did. And yet, he is less known than the best WNBA players. And what is so dang important about what this person did, not only historically, it is critical to learning lessons for the future of all humans, all animals, and even the plants on this planet. If we took the greatest physicians and scientists who had unbelievable breakthroughs to decrease morbidity and mortality, they would not add up to this single person. Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. Christian Bernard performed the first heart transplant. Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin are owed a great debt by all humans for nearly ending polio. The work of Marie Curie, without question, has resulted in an important radiologic diagnosis for either you or at least a minimum somebody you know. So if we put aside those who some would consider partly deities, such as Jesus, Mohammed, Buddha, and we focus on an event that all who have studied it agree is factual, it is hard to come to an event so influential on the world in recent history. The snap decision that influenced our health and existence by this person came quickly and without years of study. His critical decision required military disobedience, which may be one reason why governments don't promote his name. Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov of the Soviet Air Defense Forces saved the world on September 26, 1983 by disobeying 
Soviet military protocol when it appeared that the United States was launching a nuclear missile attack on the Soviet Union. The false alarm was possibly created by some sort of issue between clouds and satellites, but it isn't totally certain what exactly caused the glitch falsely showing multiple nuclear missiles heading towards Russia. Had Stanislav Petrov reported the pending missile strike, the Soviets likely would have launched a strike. That would have then resulted in a real retaliatory strike from the United States. You see, the Soviets had just recently shot down a civilian Korean airline, and that killed 269 women, children, and men. So tensions were high between the Soviets and the U.S. At that moment, as they often were in our histories, the nuclear experts feel the Soviets were on hair-trigger response alert, as was the United States. It was a time when Reagan had called the Soviets an evil empire, and it was a time where the young generations, now witnessing our current president speaking in admiration of Putin, can't fully appreciate that our heads of government used to feel very different. We were already at a minimum in a Cold War, but without question, both sides have been fighting and supporting real proxy hot wars. The incident with Stanislav Petrov in 1983 was not revealed to the world by the Soviets until the 1990s. At that time in 1983, nobody knew how close they were to death that day from an error in technology and or human judgment. If Stanislav had reported the attack, there would only be minutes to make a decision about retaliation. And most are convinced that the decision would have been made to retaliate. We all have listened to media like TED Talks, where if something is said with enough conviction, as if it is a great revelation, we think it is important no matter how unimpactful it is on the world. Do you all know there are more airplanes under the ocean than submarines in the sky? Yeah, a true fact, it changes nothing. Yet at the same time, there are some little-known facts that everyone should know. The story of Stanislav Petrov is one we all should know. Even if governments hide things and only reveal them many years later, we need to know these things. We can't trust them any more than trusting a prostitute claiming to be a virgin. In medicine, you come to appreciate how much technology can mislead you. There probably isn't a hospitalist alive that hasn't been fooled by lab errors and radiology misreads, pathology misreads. The most modern technology combined with some highly intelligent people still make major mistakes. And it is worth mentioning there are major concerns about the outdated technology our nuclear forces utilize in the United States, let alone the other parts of the world even poorer than us. It does seem there is always room in life to screw more of it up. And for some reason, for some people, it's just what they do. And it's a real bummer if someone like that is making critical decisions. A quote often attributed to Einstein said, I don't know what weapons World War III will be fought with, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. And whether he came up with that or not, it is at a minimum worthy for everybody to contemplate that thought whenever we are voting. The human decision factor in nuclear war is as scary as the technology glitch factors. 
And the United States is particularly insane in its policy that a single person has the sole authority to initiate a first strike with a doomsday device without the approval of Congress or even a majority vote of the presidential cabinet. All acts of war in the United States theoretically require Congress, except when it comes to ending the world. Perhaps a retaliatory strike doesn't even have time for votes, but a preemptive first strike left to an individual is beyond disturbing to me. My point is, we want presidents who think deeply about consequences and not ones that act on their gut. And we want the most mentally stable person in office that we can have. A person consistent in their decision-making process is important. And, in my opinion, we are always best off with someone more prone to pacifism than to war. So getting back to Stanislav Petrov now, there is a well-done movie about Petrov titled The Man Who Saved the World. Despite it accurately being titled, it will never get even 10% of the views that the Paris Hilton sex tape got, which says everything you need to know about the priorities of men. The nonchalant attitude we have all come to have about nuclear weapons is scary because, hey, as Jerry Garcia is saying, when life looks like easy street, there is danger at your door. Sometimes we need to realize the light at the end of the tunnel is actually a train heading at us. It is beyond me how any man or woman in charge of a country in this age could order the largest mass murder of humans and wildlife even in defense of a strike against you. Just because Russia or China attacked us first, if I were the president, my last act as a human being simply couldn't be the guy who just became the biggest mass murderer ever in human existence. Which is why some are very surprised when I say with all sincerity that nuclear bombing of Hiroshima in Nagasaki, I think were justified. If I were sent back in time as Harry Truman, to the day he needed to make a decision on dropping the first nuclear bomb, it is with a lot of humility and sadness that I still would do exactly what he did. So my grandfather, who served in the U.S. forces in intelligence during World War II, explained to me about what a massive invasion of Japan would have actually resulted in. He pointed out, as have many historians, that even after the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima, the Japanese, they still didn't surrender. After the second nuclear bombing of Nagasaki, Japan surrendering, knowing that we wouldn't stop. My grandfather was a darn good man, and I don't even think I would have ever been worthy of even kissing his shoes if he were to walk through a cow pasture after a hard rain. And Lord knows I wish I weren't so young and naive when he tried to tell me things, but I cherish a few things he told me and gave me. I still have the Japanese tank scope he gave me, it frequently reminds me that previous bitter enemies like the U.S. and Japan can make peace and even be future allies. Well, getting back to World War II for a moment, when the U.S. dropped nuclear bombs on Japan, the Germans had already surrendered. But we don't know how long the war would have kept going in the Pacific with Japan. It's probable more Japanese lives in total would have been lost with a drawn-out ground air, and Navy war, and without question, the nuclear bomb saved a high number of American lives. And yet, nobody should diminish the enormous suffering the nuclear weapons inflicted on the Japanese survivors, not to mention those that didn't survive. The recognition and witnessing of that suffering was a pillar of deterrent for avoiding nuclear weapons use for decades. 
Good decisions come from experiences, and very often those experiences are bad experiences. And a crazy number to think about with that bad experience is just seven-tenths of a gram. Seven-tenths of a gram of uranium in the bomb used on Hiroshima caused so much hell and torment. So let's put that in perspective. The amount of uranium used in Hiroshima in what is unfortunately now considered a very small nuclear weapon by today's standards, it was about the size of a sesame seed. Unfortunately, as Hiroshima and Nagasaki fade from our collective memory, their power as deterrence also has faded. My qualifications for understanding history are just above average. How can I even claim that? Well, I do know that Ben Franklin and Alexander Hamilton both were not presidents. We live in a time where most U.S. citizens can't even tell you a single fact about D-Day or in what war D-Day occurred. Nearly all Americans can tell you who Homer Simpson is. That is the state of our country. We have taken our attention off some important topics like events and technology that could destroy the world because ignorance really is bliss until reality catches up with us. Therefore, it is important that we learn and debate the past to try and pick the best path forward. And while it is true that the world moved on after the use of nuclear weapons, we must acknowledge that they were very different weapons used in a very different time and circumstance. Again, it is extremely likely that the amount of death and destruction both American and Japanese would have endured with a massive ground, navy, and air invasion would have been more than what nuclear bombs ultimately caused in those days. Even William J. Perry believed less Japanese died from our nuclear weapons than if the war continued. And William Perry is not only a former Secretary of Defense, but dedicated much of his writings and labor and life to continuing to keep the ignored danger of accidental nuclear war catastrophe as much in people's minds as he possibly could. So could the war with Japan have gone on for years and years, let's say like Vietnam or Afghanistan or so many others? Who knows? Needless to say, while many feel there is a moral equivalence to today regarding the use of nuclear weapons and many disagree with me, one thing to keep in mind is that was the only time in history that there likely would have been truly limited nuclear war between major powers. In fact, I think it's safe to say that any nuclear war between superpowers today would not only truly be the acronym MAD, mutually assured destruction of each country, and totally suicidal for either side, but of importance totally devastating to all the other countries that weren't involved with the original conflict and to wildlife on Earth. At a minimum, even among the camp that in retrospect opposes the use of atomic weapons upon Japan, the slightest silver lining is it gave a glimpse to future generations what a very small nuclear weapon in comparison to the nuclear weapons that exist today could cause. Alternatively, a valid argument also exists that because the past weapon's destructive capacity was tiny compared to now, that the roughly 225,000 people that died from the two blasts and the radiation poisoning in Japan, it didn't imprint into our collective consciousness what would truly happen in modern times from a single nuclear blast, let alone hundreds of weapons used simultaneously. 
Today, at a minimum, wind and water would bring nuclear poisoning to all parts of the globe in a best case scenario of a moderate nuclear conflict. More likely, multiple major blasts would cover the planet in impenetrable clouds that would make the planet totally uninhabitable, the so-called nuclear winter. We live in a world where there's never a single social media post all can agree on, let alone the idea that anyone could truly agree on whether a non-nuclear missile fired at them for sure doesn't contain a nuclear warhead. Nowadays, the stakes of the nuclear age are so high that firing any sort of nuclear missile or non-nuclear missile could cause an enormous overreaction. I think it's almost certainly that it will happen someday, and I pray not soon. Iran, in January of 2020, shot down a civilian airline in their own airspace, thinking it was an incoming missile or warplane. That was not a terribly unique situation. In 1988, the United States Navy accidentally shot down an Iranian civilian airline in a case of mistaken identity from radar and human judgment. And that's why we as a country should adopt a no first use policy with nuclear weapons, despite my defending the first and only use we utilized against Japan. These are different times. When a country like the United States refuses to make a doctrine against first strike with nuclear weapons, and we have refused to abide by that, overreactions from other countries around the world in the future are a near certainty. Combine that with actual, true threats of first nuclear attacks upon countries from presidents, like our outgoing President Trump did against North Korea, or Nixon did against Vietnam, and we can only hope that other countries will be more rational with us and believe our rhetoric isn't real. And of course, there's the idea that you can obliterate a superpower with a first strike, an argument made by many generals, before that other country can retaliate. It's a particular brand of stupidity and foolishness in the age of submarines loaded with nuclear missiles. President Obama strongly evaluated making the U.S. policy with our nuclear weapons to be a no-first-use policy. He got significant pushback, not only from within the United States, but also from outside countries. Ironically, like the Japanese and also the South Korean governments, that were concerned about a U.S. no-first-use policy with Japan being in close proximity to China, North Korea, and other countries with nuclear weapons. The country that suffered from first-use nuclear weapons is opposed to the U.S. adopting such a policy. That's the world we live in. In this era, if you are going to use a nuclear weapon on a country that also has nuclear capability, these experts are often arguing that the only strategy that makes sense as a first strike is to totally obliterate the other country so they can't fire back, arguing that a limited strike is only going to lead to escalation with a response. A horrible gamble, if you ask me, again, unless you're planning to blow up all of the oceans with all of the nuclear submarines as well. And here's the argument a lot probably are going to disagree with me with. Even if we adopted a second strike policy, the world is no safer. Many like me think that when a nuclear war arrives, it likely will be 
from bad information, such as faulty intelligence, as in Stanislav Petrov's case, or malfunctioning computers. Terrorism is second on my list of probable use of nuclear weapons causing a nuclear war. A major superpower purposefully using nuclear weapons as a first strike seems a distant third possibility on the list of scenarios, though admittedly, with a recent outwardly erratic narcissistic leader of the free world, I'm not firmly oppositional that a first strike from a superpower is totally improbable at some point in the future. Even in a more controlled situation like the Cuban Missile Crisis or what the Russians called the Caribbean Crisis or the Cubans called the October Crisis, Kennedy afterwards said, quote, you have no idea how much bad advice I had in those days, end quote. And you also can study that crisis and learn that what we were told and even what Eisenhower was told was completely wrong, which led to major crises down the line, particularly in the Vietnam War. And what I mean by that is Kennedy did negotiate our way out of that by saying we wouldn't attack Cuba and pulled nuclear weapons from Turkey, which the people of the United States were never told about. Eisenhower was never told about it. And then it became how strong he was for never compromising until history much later showed that he did compromise and was smart to. A lesson Eisenhower never got to really see as he went into Vietnam. Well, anyway, let's move away from purposeful strikes of a superpower for a moment and let me provide a practical technology scenario where a second strike can do one of two things. It can unknowingly trigger a first strike as almost happened with Russia had we not had Stanislav Petrov on duty that day, or even worse, it could just end the world. There is the potential use of what we call dead hand technology, where it takes the unpredictable human judgment and emotions out of the equation and only launches a full-scale nuclear attack if sensors on the ground determine a country has been hit by a nuclear weapon. Now just think about that, because this technology, if it's not already in place, is a possibility in the future. With dead hand technology, if a computer wrongly senses an attack happened in error, there won't even be a chance for a human to decide if missiles should then be launched. I'm not a computer scientist, but I would be shocked if there was ever a sensor or computer that didn't have a fairly significant chance of some sort of error. Even if my intuition is wrong, and sensors or computers have glitches at a rate of, let's say, 0.01%, that risk is insanity when contemplating dead hand retaliation. It is worse than building a parachute that opens on impact. In this case, it'd be more like building a parachute that explodes widely on impact. Why utilize something that won't do a thing to save you? Life is a dick. Sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down, but it won't be hard forever unless you are trying to survive a nuclear holocaust. There's unlikely to be any good days ahead for those that survive if anyone survives. And it only takes one single erratic and unprincipled leader with access to this power in multiple countries to end the world or a technology malfunction. That is truly the systems we have set in place. There's 
already enough external threats to humans that we have little control of, viruses, asteroids. The irony of the human race, unlike any other species, is that most likely our destruction that we face imminently is self-imposed. At a minimum, it seems that will be from prolonged environmental destruction if we can't make serious changes, but we are also very capable of destroying our world in less than a day. Getting back to the bigger point that computer and human error are both high risks for obliterating the planet, I encourage people to read Fred Kaplan's book. It's simply titled The Bomb, in which he discusses several of these events. And there's also shorter reads. You know, I was just reading The New Yorker from October 12, 2020, Elizabeth Colbert, in which she does review about the day the Cuban Missile Crisis almost went nuclear and gives several examples where human error and technology error and just bad judgment and bad circumstances easily could have resulted in nuclear catastrophe. But anyway, I'm a sensitive guy, and I'll be the first to admit that books can make me cry. Now, Kaplan's book didn't make me cry, but I'm rather talking about things like my calculus textbook made me cry. And that being said, I did have a lot of fear when I was reading Kaplan's book because of how many United States screw-ups were averted and not by much. Like the time someone accidentally put in a test disk in the North American Air Defense Command's computer and it looked like the Soviets had launched 250 ICBMs at the U.S. U.S. bomber pilots boarded their planes as President Carter's national security advisor was awoken in the middle of the night to let him know we were under attack. Unlike the moment in time when Stanislav Petrov didn't follow the retaliation algorithm, it luckily was not a moment when tensions were high between the U.S. and the Soviets. Had it been soon after Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire or multiple other high-tension times, you wouldn't be hearing my voice today, or at least it's a possibility. We should embrace the mistake that could have happened without Stanislav Petrov making the call he did. Embracing mistakes is hard for humans to do. I told my wife to embrace her mistakes, and she hugged me. The defense mechanism of denial, however, the desire of not thinking about this grim topic and keeping it front and center in our thoughts, it raises the biggest risk to our planet that we have. So here is a few things we need to do to decrease nuclear risk. First of all, we need to unilaterally decrease the stockpile and don't worry about other superpowers like Russia or China. Obama tried to do this, but had so much political backlash that he couldn't. There's no reason we need our current 1,600 nuclear weapons. None. Two, we need to get rid of land-based nuclear weapons or at least put them on distant islands far from the landmass of the United States. Provide no reason for a first strike from any enemy superpower. Three, prohibit the right to first use policy. At a very minimum, remove the power of first use that currently has no checks and balances from being solely in the hand of a single president. It's bad enough 
that currently a president woken up in the middle of the night will have five minutes to decide the fate of the world in regards to a retaliatory strike if another superpower unleashes their arsenal on us. The idea that a president under severe stress, and they are often under severe stress, that they will never have a moment of serious mental illness over the next hundred years and should have the sole responsibility without Congress or a civilian panel in deciding first use nuclear strike is irresponsible policy. We need an act of Congress to declare war, except for a war to end the world. It's insane. We know Nixon drank heavily during his last month in office. We know Kennedy took heavy pain medications. And we know that people can suddenly develop delirium and cognitive changes immediately from unrecognized seizures, strokes, infections, medication, or spontaneous mental illness that sometimes is unexplained. And lastly, talk about this topic frequently. I know you don't want to, but do talk about it. Without internal political pressure, a country simply won't change. And the best people to address this are those that have achieved much of Maslow's hierarchy, meaning the humans that are still trying to obtain basic needs like food, safety, rest, physical and psychological security, their focus of priorities is obviously different. For those who can devote the time, I know you prefer to focus on positive and fun things, but nothing can ruin all your chances of having fun faster than a nuclear war. Awareness and discussion of this morbid situation is the first step in reducing the danger, and then we can make leaders aware of our concerns. Facts are often disturbing, and we don't like thinking about some stuff. Like, a scientific fact is we are all here because our grandmother got laid. It's okay if you don't want to acknowledge that one, but the stakes are higher with nuclear weapons. In particular, we should be letting our leaders know that we are not interested in building larger numbers of new and more destructive weapons. Rather, people that enjoy our planet should be constantly desiring and demanding a total decrease in the nuclear arsenal. Even if we want to update our arsenal to have more reliable technology and safety features, we should desire decreased total numbers in our arsenal. Again, even if we do that unitarily. Ironically, some experts have noted that updates in technology, such as adding cyber technology, may make us more unsafe because of the potential of third parties taking control. Again, driving home the point that the less we have, the better. Thank you so much for listening to me on this very important topic. I am Dr. Gil Peratt and I will catch you on the next round.